Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Hey everyone, thank you so much for kicking off season two of Body Justice. Super stoked for you guys to hear my interview with Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. She goes by Dr. G. She talks about the medical complications of eating disorders and she is just so full of knowledge. She's one of the most compassionate doctors I've ever talked with. She is the founder and medical director of the Gaudiani Clinic in Denver, Colorado. They provide telemedicine for people with eating disorders all over the U.S. They've got two doctors there on staff. You should totally check out their website, which I'll link in the show notes. Dr. G completed her undergraduate degree at Harvard, and she did her medicine residency and chief residency at Yale. She was the medical director of Acute Center for Eating Disorders prior to founding the Gaudiani Clinic. Um, She's a health at every size informed provider and embraces treating and offering Um, weight stigma-free primary care to people of all sizes. Dr. G's has lectured nationally and internationally, and she's widely published in scientific literature. She's a current member of the editorial board of the International Journal of Eating Disorders, the Academy for Eating Disorders and Medical Care, and Residential Eating Disorders Consortium Ethics Committee. Don't know if I pronounced that right, but Dr. G is a former board member of IADEP and is one of the very small number of internal medicine physicians who is certified as an eating disorder expert. She also has a book called Sick Enough, The Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders, and it is incredible. I use it all the time with my clients. She is so full of knowledge, so I'm so excited. Let's go pick her brain. So Dr. G, can you tell listeners a little bit about you, how you identify, and what you're passionate about? Absolutely. I love that question. So I actually really enjoy starting conversations and and lectures that I give by identifying my privilege as a way of acknowledging the unearned privileges that open certain doors for me that keep doors closed for other people, and also as a way of acknowledging that my body is not representative necessarily of that of my patients or of that of anybody listening to me speak. So I identify as a cisgender woman with pronouns she and her, who is white, thin-bodied, heterosexual, able, and at 45, still quite young. And I am aware of those pieces. So thank you for letting me share that with, with your listeners. My background is that I grew up in California and went back east for school. When I was there and starting medical school, my sister arrived at college in the same city 
who has been very, very generous with her story. And she had developed an eating disorder. I did not know anything about them, except that I loved her unconditionally and was pretty confident that would be insufficient. She got a therapist and was sick for many years and finally got recovered in her mid twenties. But her story really stuck with me as did the story of a dear family friend with type one diabetes and what we would call diabolemia now with manipulation of insulin in the name of an eating disorder. And she was so ignored by often older white physicians Mm -hmm. who just didn't listen to what she brought when she was brave enough to use her voice and would just keep putting their own agenda that was number related upon her. So as I became a doctor, I had no idea that I would work in the field, but I knew that I wanted to really warmly embrace the patient's narrative about their lived experience and then bring to that my medical knowledge, as well as curiosity for what I don't know, and that together we would come up with a way of managing medical problems. So as an internist, that's sort of where I thought it would end. But life happens. And I fortunately ended up settling in Denver, Colorado, where I was a hospitalist for the inner city teaching hospital for the University of Colorado. And I had the opportunity unexpectedly to help run and grow the nation's top medical stabilization program in a hospital for critically ill adults with anorexia nervosa. I fell in love with this patient population and with my ability to be a general internist, but within a very specific underserved patient population. And then after eight great years, I opened my own outpatient medical clinic called the Gaudiani Clinic in Denver, Colorado. And My goal was to have long relationships with patients, for better, for worse, and to support them in helping ease the medical barriers to their recoveries. And those medical barriers might be as a result of their eating disorder, or they might be just concurrent primary medical problems that were getting in the way, some measurable, some not. And at this point, we're a two-doctor clinic, hopefully still growing, and we see people of all genders, ages, body shapes, and sizes from all over the United States and have a really strong social justice and weight-inclusive care philosophy. Wow, that is incredible. Like, you are doing such important work, Um, and I'm just so happy we have you on the podcast to talk about this today because there is just such a lack of eating disorder awareness in the medical community, and it really impacts people's recovery. It does. Yeah. Um, And it sounds like it really came from, you know, a place of your your personal experience too with your sister and seeing firsthand what that was like and just developing developing this really genuine compassion for those struggling with eating disorders. I really, really love my patients. You know, nothing is more fun to me than to to learn about who they are and where they've come from, to highlight and celebrate their extraordinary strengths and that which makes them such glorious individuals. And then to also tenderly concurrently hold the things that are so hard and that pull them back into the darkness that keep them from achieving their own goals and values. I, I really deeply believe that at the core of it, beyond any manualized treatments, eating disorder recovery is about relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's what 
I enjoy so much as I try to establish recognizing the power in the room when it comes to a patient and doctor, a really non-hierarchical, joyful, warm relationship. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think developing safe and secure relationships is the foundation of, of any recovery, any successful recovery, um, or even, you know, just to, to get them the clients through the hardships that they're facing, just having that safe person, especially as a doctor or a therapist is huge. Um, can you tell us what are some of the medical harms of caloric restriction, um, even just through mainstream dieting that people should be aware of? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite soap boxes. So <laughs> I like to talk with my patients and their families about something I call the cave person brain. And the cave person brain refers to the part of our brain that evolved over millennia to protect our ancestors from death by starvation, which has become so exquisitely attuned to the perception of inadequate body fueling that it remains perfectly active and in beautiful functioning order today. So this is well below our cognitive ability to control. This is a part of our brain that really runs our underlying operating system, our metabolism, the way that we use calories, the way all of our organ systems work. And so what happens is this, and, and I'll say sort of generally what happens, and then I'll note that every individual person's experience will be different with how they themselves manifest because of genetic differences. Mm -hmm. So on the whole, when our cave person brain understands that we're not getting enough fuel for our body, and this is for bodies of all shapes and sizes, not the quote unquote thin or visibly emaciated, it says, oh, I'll take care of you. I gotcha. Mm -hmm. You must be in the middle of a desert where you can't get enough food. I'll take care of you. So instantly, probably same day, it starts to reduce our body's need for calories because it's thinking, I got to go into conservation mode. And it reduces our metabolism by slowing our heart rate, slowing our digestion, cooling off our hands and feet by, by decreasing blood flow to the limbs and making us feel chillier so that we seek out warm sweaters and hot mugs of tea so that the body itself is no longer responsible for keeping our temperature at 98.6 degrees. Mm. With time, it can additionally slow down or stop our production of sex hormones and it can shunt nourishment away from less vitally important organs like hair and skin in order to keep us alive. Then at the same time, it changes our brain because a starved mammal is not playful or creative. It is rigid, focused, a little bit paranoid because it's looking at the world around it as a fragile animal and saying, you know, I'm in more danger now. I have to view the world as a little more dangerous. And that's really how people start to think as they undernourish, regardless of body shape or size, and regardless of whether this is in the service of an eating disorder, someone might be reducing their calories and increasing their movement because a doctor prescribed it, little knowing how much harm they were doing. 
And the third thing that happens besides physiological changes and psychological changes is that the body for most people says, okay, once we get out of this desert, we're gonna make sure that we get as much food into us as possible in order to prepare for our next foray into the next desert. Because of course, again, this is how our ancestors survived evolution. And when we have access to consistent food, we're gonna ratchet up the body's essential set point weight range that's generally set genetically. So that every time someone under eats, their body is gonna do its best to regain weight if any weight was lost, plus some. Mm -hmm. This is not because of a willpower problem. This is because of biology. This is in everybody's brain. So that's why the vast majority of people with eating disorders are not in emaciated bodies. In fact, the vast majority of people with anorexia nervosa are not in underweight bodies. They're in normal, quote unquote, logically. The underweight ones get more attention in part because our society is absurdly obsessed with thinness. But the vast majority of people with eating disorders are not underweight. And often eating disorders are started by a diet. Someone who decides to skip something for Lent, someone who decides to just eat a little less before spring break, someone who decides that they want to be a little healthier, quote unquote, and eat a little cleaner, and they start cutting out food groups. But the second someone does that, not only do they begin walking the path of the virtuous as far as today's society considers it, where instead of our deeds and our thoughts of goodness for others, our virtuosity and morality is dictated by how we eat, but they may also lose a little weight because often diets do start by having someone lose weight until their cave person brain kicks in to save them. And that weight loss draws so much external validation and praise, including from medical professionals who again are doing harm, that what became, what started as something innocent and transient can become ingrained. And it's so important to know that restriction of calories doesn't just lead necessarily to anorexia nervosa. Every eating disorder has an important element of caloric restriction to it. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, again, biologically, the way we're, we're hatched, when someone restricts, they're going to seek out bingeable food because that's how their ancestors survived. So they don't have a sugar addiction. They just weren't getting enough food. And so when they have the opportunity, they will binge it. That brings up the risk for binge eating disorder and also for any disorder that involves binging and purging, whether it's bulimia or other disorders like it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Gosh, that there's so much valuable information in that and so many reasons why even caloric restriction for a day or two is so detrimental to our bodies and our brains. Um, 
Is it safe to say you would never recommend like intermittent fasting or some of these? Never, <laughs> ever. <laughs> this is all just diet culture wearing a different top coat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are some of the medical complications that clinicians and clients need to be aware of when working with eating disorders? That, you know, this really forms the core of what I do on a daily basis is assessing how has any given individual's body responded to inadequate nourishment and or other eating disorder behaviors. So we talked about a few of them when I was giving examples of the cave person brain. As someone continues to inadequately nourish at any body weight or shape, they may also get low blood pressure, fainting, brain fog, anxiety, inflammation, bloating. You know, I often ask my patients who, who may be afraid of, of things society has decided are bad, like processed foods or sugar, all of which are perfectly fine in moderation, like anything is perfectly fine in moderation. But they might say, oh, Dr. G, I think it's just outrageous that you want me to eat a peanut butter jelly sandwich and a bag of chips and some fruit for lunch. What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. And what I tell them is, well, let me just ask you a question. If I were to offer you a meal plan that was likely to result in anxiety, insomnia, crappy skin, thin hair, bloating, nausea, constipation, weakness, and fatigue, would you eat that diet? And they sort of look at me like, oh boy, I know what's coming here. And I'm like, because that's the meal plan you're following. Mm -hmm. So none of my Oreos that I enjoy are going to harm you nearly as much as the way you have begun eating. Um, in addition, those who purge really risk electrolyte shifts that can cause cardiac arrest and death. So when people throw up or abuse laxatives or they can develop kidney failure. They can develop a very significant problem over time of when they stop purging, their body suddenly blows up with a ton of fluid retention, which mm -hmm. can last a long time unless it's managed properly. And even I have trouble sometimes with patients keeping them from having severe fluid overload for months after stopping if they've really gotten into laxative abuse. Um, and those with binge eating disorder, you know, there's, there's probably the fewest medical complications of binge eating disorder, which is the most common eating disorder by far. But in extreme cases, somebody can have their stomach rupture or their esophagus rupture. Um, mm -hmm. And as much as anything, they continue to have metabolic challenges because they'll often restrict for a long period of time and then binge. And that's really not the way the body wants to be fueled and taken care of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever worked with, you know, a client with an eating disorder that doesn't have some symptoms of like IBS, regardless of what type of eating disorder, just the damage to the GI tract is so real. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's important to say to everybody that in almost all cases, the medical complications of eating disorders are reversible no matter how long you've had them with consistent nutrition, 
rest, good mental health work, and time. Mm. The only one exception perhaps being fragile bones, which may not completely resolve even after quite a long period of time. However, you know, whether it's a chicken or an egg issue, people with eating disorders do often develop a lot of digestive distress. And for some, it may be, gosh, since I was a kid, I've had so many tummy aches. Anytime I got nervous, I'd get nauseated. And that made me a little bit less interested in food, or I've always had problems with constipation or bloating. I've learned in my outpatient practice so many things that I never knew in my inpatient practice. It has kept me very humble and very curious because probably one of the biggest learnings of being outpatient and working with my wonderful patients has been so much of what they experience physically is unmeasurable. Mm -hmm. And as a result, in a very quick Western system, and look, I am Western trained, um, if something isn't measurable, oftentimes patients feel like doctors blow it off. Mm -hmm. Because doctors do. So, you know, somebody who has chronic severe diarrhea or constipation, bloating, pain, and nausea goes through blood work, maybe an upper endoscopy, maybe a colonoscopy, they're told everything looks normal, you're fine, it's quote unquote, just irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, you should work on your anxiety. You have a really sensitive body. Mm-hmm. And you know, while that's not untrue, it also completely fails to capture how life-changing, how life-dominating bad digestive symptoms can be, even how bad mild or moderate digestive systems can be. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when they're not working well. So I have really come to learn a lot about functional medicine. Um, I'll give you a a great example and hopefully your listeners, one or two of them are like, oh my gosh, that's, that would really work for me. I have learned that when people are in an eating disorder, any body shape or size, and when they tend to be more of an anxious person, a lot of the anxiety and tension can settle in their core muscles. Mm -hmm. That's also got contributions from the absurd focus in our society on sucking your stomach in and people who are chronically sucking their stomach in, undernourishing themselves at least some parts of the day and anxious are creating over time an internal corset that ties up and packages down all their internal organs, including their digestive system. What happens as a result is like mind-bogglingly important, but I didn't learn it until I was outpatient. Here's some of the things that happen when you have what's called abdominal wall dysfunction, or as it gets lower, pelvic floor dysfunction. Starting from the top, their breathing may get worse because when the diaphragm can't completely expand and flatten with each deep breath, you stop massaging the intestines forward and you stop triggering the parasympathetic nervous system that calms us and rests us. So people may have shortness of breath that has nothing to do with their lungs and everything to do with the fact that they can't take a deep breath. Then their ribs may not fully expand. And when your diaphragm doesn't work, you may not be able to relax your pelvic floor to allow gas or stool out 
and that can radically contribute to constipation and to bloating. Mm -hmm. In addition, patients with abdominal wall dysfunction may be sort of tying their stomach in a, in like a tight sheet so that every time they eat, they feel full and nauseated. They may even get reflux up their throats of acid or food. And it actually might not have to do with a starvation mediated mechanism called gastroparesis where the actual digestion slows. It may just be that they have a stomach binder on. Mm. And, and what's so amazing is that if you Google pelvic floor physical therapy near me, most towns will have somebody, some wonderful soul who is expert in this and who can not only do pelvic floor work if needed, although for those with a trauma history, that may be a never, but they can also do massage of the abdomen and breathing work. I mean, I have patients from 18 years old to 70 years old who were like, I never knew I could eat without nausea. I never knew I could have sex without pain. I never knew you didn't have to pee once an hour and dribble a little bit. I never knew I could go through the world without stool incontinence. I never knew I could poop like this. So that's such a great tool to know. And, you know, I think when we talk about prevention work, let's say that you see a 13 year old in your clinic and you know, he started to say, look, I'm getting really nauseated before school or when I'm anxious, I don't want to eat. If he goes to pelvic floor abdominal wall PT early on, and for kids, it's almost always abdominal wall, you may completely prevent anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, or ARFID because you fix the underlying mechanism that causes those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Wow. I've never heard of that, but that makes so much sense. And the audience can't see, but um, I'm definitely like raising my hand there because I've always been anxious and it's always cost me stomach issues, you know, and certainly was way worse during my eating disorder. Um, and I found it to be true that after years of renourishment, it, it really just got so much better. And so you're saying that no matter how long someone has struggled with some of these medical issues and the GI issues, that renourishment can can really help that in anyone. That's absolutely right. Renourishment is always the key. And we sort of have a comma and because a number of patients end up feeling gaslit by the therapeutic community when their team says, as long as you gain the weight, let's say it's for somebody with anorexia, you'll get better and everything will get better. And some get the recovered body and food patterns, but they still feel like crap. And that's where a great physical therapist can come in. That's where you say, oh yeah, you've got some other things. This can still get so much better, maybe even completely well. And it's not just about eating disorder recovery. Let's keep thinking more broadly. Yeah. So how, what would you advise to someone like, should they wait until like six months after their quote unquote weight restored to seek out a pelvic floor specialist? Or would you just encourage people to do that as soon as they could? You know, because oftentimes pelvic floor specialists, and this is part of a, you know, access to care thing in our country that that I'm a part of as well, because they're often out of network. I would say anyone listening to this who themselves or one of their clients or one of their family members sounds like this, I would start it now Mm -hmm. because, you know, those digestive symptoms 
if they're either severe enough or if the patient is, you know, sensitive enough to them can cause them not to be able to do the nutritional rehab. Mm. It can be so dismaying to feel so crummy all the time. They're like, I just can't keep fighting. I, I can't keep pushing ahead with this. So if they're concurrently working on both, it can be really validating, A, to feel better and be like, thank you. Even though you couldn't test this in a blood test, there really is something wrong that can be fixed and it can make the recovery process easier. Oh yeah, that's a, that's that makes total sense. And yeah, I can think of a number of clients that that would benefit right now, you know, like so many um, clients report symptoms of GERD and just like general GI issues that is really a barrier to just eating quote unquote normally, you know? And so, yeah, I think that makes total sense. Um, thank yeah, you. Yeah. And I think also a, a number of healthcare professionals, I mean, this is why it's so vital to have individuals with lived experience like you who are clinicians. When it comes to me who lives in, in health privilege It'd be very easy for me to doubt someone's symptoms could be that bad and to be mm -hmm. like, you know, come on, this is just your eating disorder talking, get over it, get on your meal plan, stop resisting. Yeah. But I had an episode uh, four months ago of just sudden abdominal pain out of nowhere. And as I lay there, and of course it went away in an hour, nothing came of it. But as I lay there, I found myself thinking, oh my gosh, this feels terrible. What did I eat tonight? I wonder if I could avoid that. And I thought, oh, hey, listen to yourself. You've had 10 minutes of abdominal pain and you're wondering already if it was something you ate. Think about these individuals who have been suffering with GI symptoms for so long. So I think that when we talk about sort of um, the health privilege of, of pro providers, that contributes to patients getting blown off. Mm -hmm. And instead we've got to lean in and really listen to their stories and surround them and be like, how can I help? I will do anything on any front to ease your symptoms now and clear the path in front of you as you work on this recovery. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. That's incredible information. Um, you talk in your book, and this has been really, really helpful for me and my clients, um, about the most common reason um, that patients with anorexia end up losing their life and that it's not always what we think. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. And I wish that there were scientific data that back this up, but right now it's narrative data from my experience in the field for so long. Many people think that a, a, a fundamental heart problem causes death from anorexia. And yes, it is absolutely appropriate to check EKGs and to watch because there's certain things that you can capture. But in fact, I am completely convinced that the number one cause of death in people who have anorexia nervosa is low blood sugar. The reason for this is the following. Let's say that I, as a well person, um, get a 24 hour flu and I can't eat. My body says, great, we'll take care of you, Jen, no problem. It pulls the glycogen out of my muscles and my liver and it keeps my blood sugar levels fine. Mm -hmm. If I were say to be going through chemo where for a period of a couple of weeks, I wasn't able to get in enough food. My body would then have depleted my glycogen stores and it would then start breaking down my muscle and my fat. And in a chemical process, it would be building sugar for me. 
to keep my blood sugar at a safe place because your brain and your heart can only run on sugar. If though you have anorexia nervosa and you're at a place and everyone's genetic trigger point is different where the body can't do it anymore. There's not a specific BMI or, or anything like that. There may come a moment you just cannot rapidly enough tear up your muscle mass and any fat you have left to build sugar. And if your blood sugar goes too low, which it may do with or without symptoms, your heart will stop. Mm. So scary. Um, and this can happen at any size, right? This is more likely to happen in those who are underweight. And this is not a moment of weight stigma for me. I always try to think about my internalized size stigma because we all have it. But biologically, it's when you get to a low tissue mass that your body really sort of doesn't have enough substrate left to build sugar. Now, can people have problems from hypoglycemia at any body shape or size? 100%. Mm -hmm. But as far as sort of the classic death from anorexia nervosa by hypoglycemia, usually that is in my underweight patients. Gotcha. And to combat that in the book, you recommend like having juice um, right before bed and right upon waking, correct? Yeah. If somebody wakes in the middle of the night and they feel shaky, confused, sweaty, or like they're out of breath, reach over to the side of the bed, stab the straw in the juice box and drink it down. Mm -hmm. and then hang out for a second while your body uses that quick to absorb glucose and then get up and get your kind bar or get your bowl of cereal or whatever it is and eat something that can go the distance because that was mother nature's way of saying I've got a few chances left for you Mm -hmm. big red flag anyone with anorexia nervosa who has low blood sugar whether or not they're symptomatic should view that mother nature is just being gracious and giving them big warning signs that the end could be near. Yeah. And do you think this correlates with like the difficulty sleeping with patients with low tissue mass, like how they do wake up often throughout the night and report a lot of restless sleep? You know, that really could contribute. I think another thing that contributes is that underlying mammal sense, that cave person brain sense of, I'm not safe. I am at risk for death. And if a saber toothed tiger were to come near, I have to not fall into such a deep sleep because I have to be more alert to get out of the way faster because I'm frail. And so I think that there's that, that restless sense that I'm not okay. I might not be safe if I go to sleep. And so sleep can be so elusive. I certainly have patients who say the thing that will keep me from relapsing is that it feels so good to get good sleep every night. And I I didn't get that so much when I was in my illness. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, Yeah. So good to know. And after reading that in your book, I now have like all my clients drink juice um, before bed um, and upon waking, if they do have that really low tissue mass, like you mentioned. Um, What is your approach to treating clients in larger bodies who may be above their set point weight? Mm, I simply adore working with patients in larger bodies. 
I had to do a lot of learning, Allison, when I came outpatient, um, because although I had, I think, the bases in my heart for resisting weight stigma, I didn't have the vocabulary, I didn't have the practices, I didn't yet know about health at every size or haze, and I really, I wanted to figure out how to provide weight-inclusive care, but I didn't have the knowledge. So I was very, very grateful to a number of wonderful teachers who patiently, generously helped move me along. And at this point, when I see any patient in a larger body, I have no interest in weighing them. Weight is not a vital sign for those in larger bodies. You cannot look at someone with perhaps the very exceptions of the extremes of weight and know whether they're healthy or not. Mm -hmm. And I often take care of patients who have an eating disorder history, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder who are in larger bodies and who may well be living above what was ever going to be sort of a, a typical natural set point mm -hmm. that can come around for a lot of reasons for those with anorexia nervosa which unfortunately we call atypical anorexia nervosa which just shows the weight stigma of the dsm-5 mm -hmm. um, their weight is high not because they've ever eaten more calories than their body quote unquote needed a day in their life but because their dear cave person brain over years of dieting perhaps weight cycling and inadequate food just kept raising their body weight to protect them until they could get to adequate food. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, for my patients with atypical AN, I prefer to just call anorexia, I keep reminding them the only way forward is to nourish thoroughly, refuse yourself nothing, satisfy your body's needs and rest and take care of yourself in, you know, organically and, and, and holistically. Um, and for those who have bulimia or for how, who have binge eating disorder, those who gained weight in binge eating disorder and not all do, I think in my experience, um, are likelier to have gained weight quickly in the source in, in the context of intense caloric intake. And, um, that's also though, underlain by the reduced metabolism of restriction. So they may restrict all day, which lowers their metabolism and mm -hmm. wants to raise their set point, and then they binge, which can increase weight. Um, what I love about a weight-inclusive perspective is that I'm telling the same message to everybody. There's no double standard. So mm -hmm. to everyone, it is, how can I help you medically while you work with your wonderful therapist and dietitian? nourish yourself consistently, abundantly, and satisfyingly throughout the day, most of the time in moderation, but sometimes immoderately, because immoderate eating can be a glorious part of, of life. Mm -hmm. And how can I help you show compassion for your body, which has been through so much? My job in that context is not to impose diet culture upon them, and so if one of my patients in the course of treatment happens to lose weight, no one here is like, oh my God, you've lost weight. That's so exciting. Hayes is a completely weight neutral philosophy where as they do recovery work, weight may go up, it may stay the same, or it may fall. Any of those outcomes are okay. They are biologically driven. So you can't control what your body is gonna to happen to do. But the only way forward towards wellness, regardless of what your body weight is, 
is that consistent eating and eventually as feels right movement within ability and interest over time yeah absolutely yeah i use haze in my practice too and at first there's always some resistance from clients right they're like what are you talking about this doesn't seem like any of the stuff i've heard my entire life but there's also usually a sense of relief like oh that makes sense do you find that too 100%. I also have patients who decide after seeing me or my partner for the first time not to join the clinic. They're Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 I have to lose weight. Yeah. I may or may not have medical problems that are to a certain extent causally associated with my higher weight. I have to, what do you mean you wouldn't help me lose weight? What do you mean that wouldn't be a goal of yours? Mm -hmm. And I say, I really respect that. I'm so sorry you've been harmed by diet culture that's not what this clinic is about. And they say, okay, see ya, which is right because they will never be satisfied with our philosophy. And the ones who do stay, I think do feel safer and, and cherished in their bodies. Right. And you mentioned like, you know, that there are some extremes in terms of weight. And when we're talking about the extreme on um, the side of being in a larger body, do you still use the Hayes approach or do you ever um, think that sometimes gastric bypass is an answer that could be viable for someone? Or are you just like, never, no, absolutely not. I want to go really gently around this because you may have listeners who have gotten gastric bypasses or somebody in their, in their lives who have. My personal practice is that I would never, ever, ever refer somebody to gastric bypass. Mm -hmm. Um, I truly believe, and remember, I only see people with eating disorders. A gastric bypass eating disorder is a ticket to hell. Yeah. Because the one ounce pouch, one ounce left as the stomach oftentimes I mean, how can anybody, even without an eating disorder, ever live a reasonable quality of life with that and with, um, you know, deliberate malabsorption created anatomically? I respect that people may have engaged in gastric bypass because they felt that they were saving their lives at the time with the best information they had at the time. It was the only choice they thought was left. And so I never want anyone to feel ostracized or shamed for having gone through that. I do, however, wanna offer immense compassion to the people who preceded and then deeply lamented it, of which there are many. And when I see somebody body who has significant challenges in their lives as a result of their body size, I still bring the same message, but I try to do it in a way that, um, that honors and, and validates their experience. So for instance, by not being a doctor who will be the 17th doctor to say, get on a diet, I might be the one who helps them start healing their eating disorder. So they're Mm -hmm. no longer in restrictive cycles with or without binging. Um, it's, you know, by, by helping them with resources and representational care, whether that's helping them establish with a team member who might be in a larger body, whom they feel more congruency with in terms of their, their, their bodies together, 
or with resources like the JOIN app, I have no financial interest in it, J-O-Y-N, that um, is led, it's, it's sort of movement led by people in larger bodies for people in larger bodies. And it, it's none of it is related to try to changing your body. It's all about becoming more vibrant, becoming more independent, becoming more, more comfortable in your body. So by offering resources like that, and by not causing weight stigma harm, my feeling is that I can help people be the healthiest they possibly can through an access that doesn't include weight stigma. Mm-hmm. 100%. That's been my approach to when clients bring up gastric bypass. And because really it is just a forced diet, right? Like that's not going to help an eating disorder at all. And that's it's from clients I have worked with that have had gastric bypass. They have so many medical complications. Like the quality of life is not great after. Correct. And I know that there are people for whom supposedly it's been positive. So again, I'm not trying to um, doctor explain their yeah. experience, but on the whole, my sense is, is that it's kind of a barbaric procedure that really can influence people's quality of life negatively. And that doctors would be much better suited examining our own harmful practices school and and residency and that we continue to propagate upon patients than to do these really intense surgeries later on yeah no yeah i completely agree um okay a couple more questions one really interesting one i'm excited to ask you about so i hear more and more about up and coming research on like psychedelic assisted medicine for eating disorders like psilocybin MDMA, ketamine, marijuana. Um, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on this? Like, do you have patients that ask you about these treatments? Yeah, I think it's one of the most exciting new avenues in eating disorder treatment that are out there. Mm -hmm. So I don't yet know the data on psilocybin and MDMA, but I have absolutely no objection to my patients acquiring it as long as they can do so safely. And, you know, using somebody who does know about it, either to microdose or to try to go on journeys as long as it's done in a safe way. Um, because I've heard really, really positive stories. What I do have a lot of experience with is ketamine. And I've referred a ton of patients now around the country to intravenous ketamine, which is not covered by insurance and very expensive, but also to intranasal ketamine, also called Spravato. I have no financial interest in any of this stuff. Um, <laughs> And um, I have seen it have extraordinary benefits. So for ketamine, which I can really speak to, I have probably referred around 35 patients um, in the last couple of years. And I only refer patients who have any one or several of the following. Refractory depression that is deeply in the way of quality of life or recovery, suicidality, severe OCD, chronic pain, and PTSD, where the trauma responses of the body, either to a prior lived trauma or just to the trauma of having had and working on recovery from an eating disorder, rise up and get in the way of the therapeutic work and the recovery process. Mm -hmm. So by definition, the patients that I refer are my most significantly impacted by those 
psychological diagnoses. And you'd think, you know, because they have not responded to anything else that's been tried, and usually a lot of things have been tried, that they would have pretty poor outcomes no matter how great the treatment was. Two thirds have either a good or a life-changingly good experience with ketamine. Wow. Which is like pretty astounding. Yeah, that's Um, fascinating. It's just amazing how people who couldn't live outside of treatment suddenly are living independent lives again. People who couldn't get out of the, the recurrent cycle of PTSD and trauma reactions are now able to do trauma work and stay in their bodies and bear having a body while they heal. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yes. As far as pot, you know, I live in Colorado and, and marijuana is legal here. Um, historically, studies on marijuana have not, or, or on Marinol, which is the derivative, um, have not necessarily shown benefit, at least in anorexia nervosa, um, because you know, the hope was basically, if you use pot, you'll calm down and you'll get the munchies and you'll want to eat. Right. Certainly for some of my patients, they do use cannabis um, before meals or before dinner and and somewhat regularly. But on the whole, usually anorexia is not a problem of lack of appetite. Yes, your appetite can get wonky when you're malnourished, but a lot of my patients have appetite, but they resist it. So, you know, I also keep in mind that I prefer patients really not to use too much marijuana before age 25 because of the data around influence on brain development and cognitive status. I also want to make sure with pot, because it's more readily available and and increasingly legal, that people aren't ignoring needed therapeutic work or medications that might help them and instead sort of numbing and dissociating while high. So I always have those little caveats. Yeah, that's super helpful and important. I just love the hearing that research about ketamine. That's that's incredible. I hadn't heard about it for OCD either. And I, I work with patients often that will have both anorexia or any eating disorder and OCD. Um, it doesn't help the anorexia. That's something it's important to say. Mm-hmm. You didn't hear that list of five that there was any anorexia there. It doesn't help with body image. It doesn't help the meat. It helps get other concurrent primary mental illnesses cooled down so that recovery isn't stalled anymore. Gotcha. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, Okay, well, thanks so much. Last question, Dr. G. What does body justice mean to you? Mm. Well, I want to express gratitude to all of the individuals who are on the front lines of the social justice movement and who are really opening the dialogue with their fierceness, their courage, their capability to educate people like me. I'm not usually on the front lines. I benefit from those who are, and then I am capable as an educator and disseminator and translator on the whole. So I don't have original thoughts on this, but I do have education from those wonderful souls. Body justice talks about recognizing the profound inequities in society, identifying the systems of oppression that benefit some and harm others, and deliberately choosing not 
to propagate or hold up those systems of oppression, but to challenge them, to replace them, and to make sure that every body has a greater opportunity to feel safe and celebrated and have the opportunities that others have. Mm-hmm. I and I would it. say that my, my two favorite resources for this would probably be Sonia Renee Taylor, the brilliant author of The Body is Not an Apology. And anytime you listen to her podcast, they're just mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to Sabrina Strings, who's fearing the black body is absolutely brilliant and shows us so many of the deep but now hidden roots of sizeism that is deeply linked in intersectional ways with racism and with many other points of oppression in our country. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Those are two of my staple books. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. G. Where can people find you in your clinic? Wonderful. We are at, um, our website is www.gaudianiclinic.com. That's G-A-U-D-I-A-N-I clinic.com. On social media, we have a really fat, positive, body positive presence. And we're at Gaudioni Clinic across the different um, social media platforms. And um, my partner and I see patients from all over the United States because we're licensed in most of the states now and see people by telemedicine without them ever having to come physically to Denver, Colorado. And all the information about that is on our website. That is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, thank you for your time today. It's been such a joy. Thanks for having me. Thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of Body Justice. I really hope you enjoyed my talk with Dr. G. I know I really loved meeting with her. If you have a moment, I would love for you to go review me on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews I get, the more the algorithm pushes the podcast out to people who really need these messages. As you know, access to eating disorder resources are sparse and only a few privileged people can really access them. That's the whole point of my podcast is to get more information out there to people who cannot traditionally seek the care they need. At least we can provide them with some knowledge and tools to to better help their recovery. So please go leave a review. Also, you can find me on my website, www.allisonfordcounselingservices.com and on my Instagram at bodyjustice.therapist. Thank you all and I hope you have a beautiful day.